Good morning, everyone. To those I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor of Newark Church. What a wonderful time singing to the Lord this morning. My heart is full already. I feel like we've received the, the word just through the songs that we've been singing. Um, but let's go ahead and pray and believe that the Lord has more to say to us. Dear Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have today to read and to study your word, to examine it, but also allow your word to examine us, to search us, to show us where we are not believing, Lord, where we can grow in our faith and our wonder for you. Dear Lord, you know the things that have tempted us this week to believe that it is more satisfying than you that have tried to show itself more trustworthy, Lord. Lord God, you know, Lord, the things that have promised to deliver us when only you can deliver us. And so we pray, Lord God, that today you would show yourself through your word to be more trustworthy, more satisfying, a stronger help for us in times of trouble. <laughs> would you ask the Lord right now in, I'm sorry, this could Could you ask the Lord right now from your own heart to speak to you what you need to hear himself? Amen. So in the early 1990s, anytime you visited an Indian Christian's home, you would likely see a copy of The Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, somewhere in the home. Um, the Last Supper is a mural painting depicting the final meal of Jesus before his crucifixion, and more specifically, it's the moment, it's a precise moment, according to da Vinci, that Jesus told his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. And so you just see everyone just like, it's like a, it looks like a moment of chaos. As a kid, I remember seeing it and trying to figure out what was going on, and trying to figure out what, which disciple is which, like who is who is who in, 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 in that painting. And later in high school, I remember that our teacher, as best as she could, tried to get us to appreciate colors and angles and symmetry, how it's all trying to get our, direct our eyes to a focal point, you know, to appreciate the work beyond just trying to figure out who is Judas, huh? which one is Judas. So when Jyoti and I had the chance to visit Milan, I think it was like in 2014, and see Da Vinci's Last Supper, actually see it, like maybe 10 feet away, it was incredible. It was a surreal experience. It was like, oh my gosh, is this like what I've always seen, you know, in like people's homes and what I learned about in school? Like I'm actually looking at something hundreds of years old. It's like, it's like I stood before something transcendent, something that was ancient, something that was much bigger than me at that moment, than me at that moment. Like have you ever experienced something like that? Like come, come in front of something that was just transcendent, gave you a sense of wonder, because it just seemed like it was so much bigger than you. And if we feel that way with art, or when we encounter things that we make of the world, imagine what we would feel if we confronted our maker, the one who created us, if we encountered God. We're beginning a new series today called Close Encounters with God. 
And every week we are going to explore a passage in the Old Testament where somebody actually had an encounter with God. And we're going to look at how that shaped and marked that particular person's life. We're not doing this to chase an encounter with God. No, we believe God loves us. He's with us. He's done everything to come and be near to us. But we're going to read about what is possible when God draws near. And what's possible when we draw near to God. And today we will see that assurance is possible. We can find assurance when we need it. Before we begin, I want you to think about what assurance you need today. If, if God could reassure you about anything in your life, what would it be? Don't say it out loud. Just think about it. Like, what reassurance do you need today? I'm going to give you a second. In today's passage, we're going to read about an encounter that Abraham had with God and how God reassured him. And you're going to notice that the way that God reassured him even though it's not the same exact words, it's not the same exact thing that he would do, like that he did for Abraham, there are similarities, there are parallels that we can draw today. When God assures someone, he generally, not, it's not all, the only thing he does, but generally will assure him or her of two things. About who he is to us and what he said is true. Who he is and what he said is true. Let's look at the first thing, assurance of who God is. I'm going to set this up before we read the, the, a, a verse uh, in a moment. But in this passage, we're going to re- meet someone named Abram, also known as Abraham. And I'm going to share a little bit more about his background in a moment. But just for now, this immediate, like right when we jump into Genesis 15, this is what's going on. Abram didn't have any kids, but he had a nephew named Lot. And Lot was caught up in this war of, between multiple kings. And Lot is taken captive, and Abram finds out. And he ends up gathering a small army. He was a wealthy man. He was influential. He gathers a small army and goes and rescues Lot, as well as some other people uh, as well, and plunders those kings. And he comes back with all that plunder. And one of the kings, the king of Sodom, approaches Abram after this and says, here, look, basically says, look, I realize you won. Keep the goods. At least give me back the people that you took away. And Abram says to him, basically, I don't want any of your goods. I don't want you one day to go out and tell people that I'm rich because of you, because I've plundered your stuff. I don't want, you could take basically everything, all the goods. Just give me the people that came with me and what belongs to them. So immediately after this is where Genesis 15 picks up. And so coming out of that, this is what it says in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your very great reward. So he's just returned from battle. He's just given away the spoil. And we aren't sure what he's feeling in this moment, but it's enough for God to say, don't be scared, right? And it could be, don't be scared because it's me. Or it could be, don't be scared because of what you just experienced, right? It's like, we're not sure what it is, but did you notice what God said to him? What assurance he gave? He said, I am your shield. I'm the one who defends you in battle. I'm the one who protects you, who goes before you, who surrounds you, who gives you victory. God wants Abram to know that he is the one that helps Abram succeed. God is also his very great reward. Some translations say you're, like the ESV, for example, we read read the NIV, but the ESV will say your reward is exceedingly great. And that translation makes sense because of what Abram is going to say after that. He's going to say, basically, then what are you going to give me? If my reward is very great, what are you going to give me? 
But I also like the way the NIV translated, uh, translates it here, which is, I am your shield, and basically, I am your very great reward. I am your reward. And the reason that they probably translated that way is because the word for reward is also a word that can be used for spoils of war, like the wages of a warrior. So what you have here is Abram come back from war, right? And he's given away the spoils. And God, the very next thing he says is, don't be afraid because I am your shield in, in, in battle. And I am your spoils of war. I am your reward. Not the goods that you've given away. The assurance that God gives him when he has given those goods away is that God is his reward. And in both descriptions, the assurance that he offers is who God is to Abram. Sometimes that's what we need. There are times when we need a reminder of what God's going to do. We're like, can you just tell me what you're going to do again? I just, need you to, I just need you to say it again. Right? just need to hear you say it. So, or remember some promise in Scripture that's true for you. We're going to get to that. There's a, there's, a, there's a place for that, right? We need to remember the promises of God. But other times, and I would say perhaps even more so, perhaps found more fundamentally than that, we need to hear who God is to us. And remembering who he is has a way of restoring our joy, has a way of giving us hope, or it helps us face another day. He told Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. So what is it that you need to hear about God today? To answer that question, you may need to think about what you lack right now. Where do you sense scarcity in your life? Lack loss, uncertainty, or instability. Think about that. God didn't speak to him out of like nowhere, out of a vacuum, devoid of experience. He spoke directly into what he was experiencing to show what he is in the midst of those things. This is what you see in Scripture. Scripture is the inspired word of God, but the people who wrote it wrote Words of comfort for us about God, but based on their own experience, like what they were lacking or the loss that they had in, the, in, that, in that moment. In the midst of that, they wrote about what they had in God. For example, when Moses and the Israelites wandered in a wilderness without a home for 40 years. In Psalm 90, Moses writes, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Maybe you need to hear that. God is your dwelling place, the assurance of who he is. I'll tell you, that's a verse I quote a lot, and I say to myself, and I pray a lot. <laughs> when we didn't know where we were going to live, like when, like when our lease is due and we got to find an apartment, oh, Lord, you've been our dwelling place for all generations. Like when you feel like you're just wandering, you need that promise. You need to know who he is. Or when Asaph wrote Psalm 73, he grieved how people who did wicked things seemed to be more prosperous than him, even though he was trying to do everything he could to be faithful, but yet he wasn't prospering. And he writes in Psalm 73, Whom do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing I, I desire on earth beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my life. You are my portion forever. Maybe you need to hear that today. And you feel like you're missing out on what others have and you seem to suffer even though you are trying to be faithful to God. Maybe you need to hear this about who God is. God is your strength. He is your portion. He is your inheritance forever. He is your portion. When Israel rebelled against God, God said through the prophet Jeremiah, Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. 
My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What's he saying there? He's saying, Israel, I am your fountain. I am the cistern that doesn't have a hole on it. I don't run dry. I am your satisfaction. He's reminding of who, of them of who he is for them. When life constantly shifts and you just want some kind of stability, maybe you need to hear God say, I am the rock on which you stand. When you des- desperately desire escape and you're looking for some kind of relief from the burdens of life, maybe you need hear- to hear God say, I am your refuge. I'm your shelter. I'm your stronghold. When you feel lost, wandering without a shepherd, maybe you need to hear him say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Think about the loss or instability you feel. What can God be for you today that can make you brave? I'm going to pause. What can God say to you about himself, who he is for you, that will make you brave today? Give you hope. What can he say about himself to restore genuine joy in your life? To make you content? What can he say to help you get out of bed tomorrow? Here's what he says about himself. You've heard some of this already, but it's good to hear again. I'm your portion. I'm your inheritance. I'm your provider, your stronghold, your victory, your deliverance. I am your salvation. I am your redeemer. I am your comforter. I am your advocate. I am your treasure. I am your shade. I am your strong tower. I am your shelter. I am your fortress. I am your shield. Your very great reward. What about God would reassure you today? You would be amazed at how much peace that can give us. Normally, the progression is something like this. When we're overwhelmed and anxious and burdened or despair, at first we start by thinking, oh, if God would just do something, I'd feel better. And then he does it. And then you get to a place where you're like, oh, if you would just say something, I would feel better. And then he does it. And then finally you just say, just need you to be someone for me, God. What I really need is not just what you would do or what you would say. I I just remind me of who you are to me. He is my future when I'm worried about my future. He's my deliverer when I feel powerless. He's my treasure when I lose something that I think would make me happier. He's my father when I just need a father who won't leave. It doesn't address everything that needs to be addressed. For example, if you need direction in your life, 
I could say he's your future, but at the end of the day, you still need to weigh pros and cons of a decision and needs to still make a choice that's true. So it doesn't mean you don't have to weigh choices or decisions or make a difficult decision. It just means this, that who God is, though, becomes a foundation of your confidence and assurance. That bears the pressure of your joy and your confidence, not what you do, but who God is. And today, maybe you think what you need to hear is what he will do or what he will say, but maybe, just maybe, the assurance you need is to remember who he is and that that would be enough. That leads to the second word of assurance here that Abram received. Not only did God assure him of who he is to Abraham, but God also gave him assurance that what he said is true. Let's continue reading. Verse 2. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children. And so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. All right, I'm going to zoom out a little bit to give you a little bit more context, not just about Abram's life, but about what God is doing in the world at this moment. A few chapters before this, in Genesis 11, uh, there, we find where we discover that there are people, they all had one language, they were all trying to be one people, and they were trying to build a tower up to the heavens, and they actually said, let us make a name for ourselves. They're unified in their pride against God. That's what you basically get from the text, all right? So God sees this and disrupts their plan. He disrupts their project by giving them different languages. So it's like they wake up the next day and all of a sudden they can't understand each other and they end up abandoning their project. Now you may say, why would God do that, right? They were unified. Well, what unifies you matters. Like unity all in and of itself is not the highest ideal. Like we love unity, but it's not the highest ideal. When people are united by a dictator, we don't say, oh, isn't that nice? Like, we don't say that because we know what unifies people matters. Like, you might have some friend where you have a friend where the only thing you have in common with this coworker of yours is that you hate the same person or you don't like your boss, right? And you realize that's all that you have in common, right? We know that what unites us with another person actually matters. And so God wants to unite humanity. But it won't be under their pride. It won't be them making a name for themselves. It's going to be under the name and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Fast forwarding thousands of years into the future, he actually does it. Despite the various languages of people, what you see in Acts 2 is that when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, people who otherwise would not understand each other's languages hear the word of God in their own tongue. And God begins to unite the nations despite their different different nationalities. They're all Jewish at that particular moment, but he shows what he's going to do, that he's going to bring the nations together under the name and the lordship of Jesus Christ. But before all that, so that was Genesis 11. Fast forwarded to Acts 2. We're going to go back now to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Before all this, right after he scattered everyone with different languages, he revealed himself to a man named Abram to show the beginning, the first workings of what he was going to do. 
He tells this man who was born and raised in a rock, who comes from a family who made and worshipped other idols. He tells this man, you, I'm going I'm to I'm give you an offspring, and through that offspring, the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. Not one nation, but the nations of the world are going to be brought in and blessed through you. He has no idea what God has in mind. But God makes his promise. And it's the second time, what we just read here, is the second time the Lord has spoken to him. At this point, he's about 75 years old, and he still needs assurance. Well, you'd think, you'd, you can understand, he's 75 years old. He needs to know that this is going to happen. And the Lord takes him outside. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Your descendants are going to be like that. And they believed God. And God credited to him his righteousness. And I think it's more than just believing what God said, but it goes back but who God is, right? And I, I don't want to stretch the metaphor too far, but if you can imagine every day looking at the stars or every evening looking at the stars and seeing a reminder of the promise. And for us, what it's like metaphorically in some way is that the sun rises and the clouds come. And what do you look at? What's, when the, all the signs of the promise are gone, what are you going to look at? I believe Abraham believed in God he held on to it despite his circumstances. I believe he trusted God that what God said was true, that God was true. God saw that, and he actually credited this man who is frail and flawed righteousness. He had right standing before God because he believed God that what God said was true. And here's two things that I think that are interesting with this. First is that Abraham needed a reminder. God told him in Genesis 12 what he would do. But in chapter 15, he needed a reminder again. Lord, how will I, how will I, who's going to be my heir? And God had to come and speak into his life again. He needed to remember what was true. But the second thing you also see is how much God values belief in him. It's like the poison in the Garden of Eden. Like, if they just trusted the Lord that God was not withholding anything good. That you could believe what he said, that if you ate of this, you were going to die. That everything they needed was there and available to them, and he was enough for them. If they just believed that, they didn't, though. And that poison has continued into our veins to this day. And so you can only imagine how much place value God places when people believe him. That he is trustworthy, despite what they feel, despite their experiences and what is in front of them. If they would just believe God, that what he said is true. He counts it as righteousness. As I said before, Abram didn't need to just hear assurance once. That's okay. It's okay if you and I need to be assured again and again. I think I've told you before, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 143, verse 8, where the writer of that psalm says, let the morning bring word of your unfailing love. It's like, it means I wake up and let the morning come and tell me how much you love me. Imagine how insecure we feel telling people in our lives that we, we maybe trust. Can you imagine telling them, can you tell me that you love me in the morning? And the next day, can you tell me that you love me in the morning? After a while, you'd feel needy, a little insecure. But with God, we have permission to say, Let, it's a new day. Let the morning bring word of your love for me today. Like you can ask for that again and again. We, we need the assurance, and that's okay. Now, there are times when it's sinful, it's when you're asking because you're suspicious of God. Maybe you're holding him at a distance. It's like, you know, you got that, if you have a really argumentative friend that 
claims to just be open-minded and want more evidence, but you, time has shown that to give them more evidence is just to give them more evidence to reject. There are times where you, we present ourselves as wanting some like assurance from God, but we're suspicious of him. We are hard-hearted. For him to show himself even more is to just give us more things to reject. You see that in, in, in the scriptures when people are asking him for signs. And he rebukes them for it because he's like, what more sign do you need, right? Because he knows that the problem is a stiff, a hard-heartedness, right? And to give them more is just to give them more to reject. But then there are times when we ask for assurance because, it's we, because we genuinely want to believe. But we sense the presence of unbelief. And we know the problem isn't with God, but the problem is with us. We know that our hearts just need to come alive to, again to what is true. It's, it's the, there's the truth, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, but our hearts just need to come alive. And so we say, God, can you just assure me again? That's okay. God is big enough for that. So what is that for you? What promise of God in Scripture do you need to remember is true? Is it that he will provide for you? Or watch over you. It's okay to ask him for that. To never leave you or forsake you. Is it that he will protect you or cover you or redeem you or never stop loving you or never will, ne will never stop loving you? Is it that he welcomes you and embraces you? Or that he will guide you and counsel you with his loving eye upon you? Is it that he will give you wisdom if you ask? Or that you can ask with boldness? Or that you can surrender with peace? I could go on and on. What promises of God in Scripture do you need to remember is true? That what he said is true. On some occasions in the Bible, when God asks someone to confirm what he has said, it can grieve him, as I said. But because they haven't believed him, even though he's made it abundantly clear. But what's, what we notice here, and we're going to read just uh, short, another short section here. What we notice here with Abraham is that Abraham, despite seeing the stars and hearing the promises of God, still wanted something to hold on to, like some kind of anchor to know that what God said was true and is going to happen, and, and God provided it. And maybe it's something that we can hold on to something like that too whenever doubt creeps in, into our lives as well. Notice what he says in verse 7. This is God first speaking. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? I mean, you'd want to stop there and say, because I told you, Abraham, what's that how you know, right? But God, but God doesn't stop there. He's so gracious and patient. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. You're like, ah, now he'll know. No, like, what, what does that even mean, <laughs> right? Verse 17, let's keep reading. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Like, I know when we read a Bible and we get to the animals. <laughs> I mean, when do we see animals? Other than rats in the subway or like the, you know, or like pigeons. We have to go to a zoo to actually come across animals. But it was such a part of their life. 
we get to animals and stories of animals, and our eyes just kind of glaze over, like, okay, let me just get through this part and get to the part that I understand. But this is significant. Abraham wants to know that God's going to do what he's, how can he know what God, that God's going to fulfill what he said, right? And what God does is actually a powerful confirmation to those who would read this at the time. He has Abraham gather animals, cut them in two, and put them kind of on opposite sides of each other, which was customary for a covenant. Two people making this covenant would take these animals, cut them in half, and they would each take turns walking through this pathway between these two animals. And what they would essentially say to each other is, let me be like these animals if I don't do what I say. And one of the reasons we know that is because in Jeremiah 34, uh, verse 18, God rebukes people for rebelling against them and cites this kind of covenant. I'm going to treat you like the animals that you walk between, is what he says. So we know that that's basically what the statement was saying, right? So there are some, there's some disagreement to that, but the, the idea here is that when you get to verse 17, you see that God puts Abraham in a deep sleep, and you notice there's a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch that passes through. This is representative of God's presence, and it could be that God's going to just be with them in general, and that's the assurance, or it could mean that God is telling Abraham in this moment, Abraham, let me be like these animals if I don't do what I'm going to say, if I don't fulfill my promise. It's either way, it's God saying to him, that he's willing to endure that dreadful walk. He doesn't make Abraham walk it. And I think that gets to the heart of what so many of us want when we seek assurance from God. One, we need to hear God tell us who he is again to us, right? We need that reminder. We also need to know, again, that what he said is true, and if that were not enough, what really undoes us is when he shows us that he's willing to take that dreadful walk to show us both of those things. Who he said and what he said is who he is to us and what he said is true. It's so easy to read something like this and say, oh, but this is for Abraham. He's like a pillar in the faith, right? Like, would you do that for us? Of course he would. God has done that for us in Jesus and so much more. That's precisely what he's done for us in Jesus. In Christ, he's given us more, the most vivid picture of who he is for us. He wasn't satisfied with metaphors of shields and swords and rewards and shelters and strong towers. The very imprint of his nature was given to us. The fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily. He gave Jesus, his only son. God shows us who he is, and he doesn't teach us what is just what is true, but he shows us what is true all the way to the cross. And if we had any lingering question about who he is or if we could, he could be trusted, what does he do? He makes us, he walks that, that dreadful walk for us. He died in our place so that we would live, and he rose from the dead so that we could have genuine assurance today that there is hope, family. Jesus rose from the dead. He walked that dreadful path for us, and he rose from the dead to show us that he really is the victor. With all the things that feel like it's failing in our life, all the areas of our life where we feel like we are losing or we wonder, will we lose at the end? Jesus shows us, and those who, who hope in him, that he is the victor. He is the redeemer of our stories. He really is our provision, God's provision for us. He really is our king. He's our treasure. He is our shield. Jesus is our very great reward. And because of him, we can be sure of who God is and that what God said is true.